Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, picture this. John Lennon is sitting at his piano in his New York City apartment overlooking Central Park. The year is 1977. Earlier that year, he'd announced to the world that he was giving up music, taking a hiatus, focusing on being a dad. But he's a songwriter, and ideas are still coming to him. So he gets a tape recorder, puts in a cassette, and presses record. What John couldn't have imagined that night, when he sat at the piano and pressed record on the tape recorder and played this unfinished song, was that this very performance would form the foundation of the next hit single for his old band, The Beatles. Welcome to the age-old question. I'm Rich Price. And I'm Clint Bierman. Each episode deals with another question in music fandom. The kind of questions that Clint and I have been debating since we were in college. So today, with the help of some smart people, we're going to come up with the answer. Okay, Clint, what's today's question? Today's question is, is Free as a Bird the Beatles' most impressive hit? That's the age-old question. Okay, Clint. While it might not surprise our listeners to know that we found another reason to talk about the Beatles, it might surprise our listeners to know that I think Free as a Bird is the Beatles' most impressive hit. Hot take. And in today's episode, I'm going to make that case. Great. You ready? Let's do it. All right, before we give the backstory of Free as a Bird, let's play a little bit of the single that came out in 1995. <laughs>
come back to that version in a little bit. But I want to take us back to 1977, to the night that he records the demo of this brand new song. So new that he hasn't finished writing the lyrics. In fact, in the bridge, he kind of mumbles gibberish as placeholder. Whatever happened to the life that we once knew? He would have been aware that 1977 was the 20th anniversary of meeting Paul McCartney in the summer of 1957. That event changed his life and of course changed the lives of music fans everywhere. 1977 would be seven years on from the acrimonious breakup of the Beatles. It was the year that he announced he was stepping back from music to focus on being a father to Sean, who had been born two years earlier on October 9th 1975, John's 35th birthday. When he's, I don't know whether it's because uh, he was born on the same day as me, which that in itself was quite strange. He was born on October the 9th, um, which I was, so we're almost like twins. So John is focused on being a father. Free as a bird gets shelved or forgotten. And he spends the next three years basically baking bread and pushing a stroller around Central Park. But the songs start coming again, and he wants to make a record. I suddenly had all this material after not really trying, but not not trying either for five years. I'd been so locked in the 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 home environment and completely switched my way of thinking that I, it, I didn't really think about music at all. My guitar was sort of hung up on behind the bed, literally, <laughs> and I did, don't think I took it down in five years. And in October 1980, John emerges from his hiatus with a song appropriately called Just Like Starting Over. It'll be just like starting over. Starting over. Every day we used to make it love. So that's why we, I ended up doing a track like Starting Over. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek. You know, it's holy, it's that a la Elvis and that, and I, I, I hope people accept it like that. I, I think it's a serious piece of work, but it's also tongue-in-cheek, you know. I mean, I went right back to my roots. It's not going back to being Beatle John in the 60s, it's being John Lennon, whose life was changed completely by hearing American rock and roll on the radio as a child, and that's what's the part of me that's coming out again. That's why I'm enjoying it this time. Why don't we take off alone? Take a trip somewhere far, far away We'll be together all alone again Like we used to in the early days So John is getting back to his roots and he's inspired in ways that he hasn't been in years. He and Yoko put out Double Fantasy in November of 1980 and he's already at work on a follow-up. On December 8th, 1980, he and Yoko come back from a recording session at the record plant. And as they get out of their limousine at 10.50 p.m., a deranged fan, Mark David Chapman, yells, Mr. Lennon, and fires his gun. Former Beatle John Lennon is dead. He was shot a short time ago outside his Manhattan apartment building. He died at Roosevelt Hospital. Police have a suspect in custody. 
out of the limousine and they went inside the gate there and then all of a sudden they heard five, six shots and that was it. Four cops pulled John Lennon out and put him into the back of a police car and his mouth, he was bleeding from his mouth and he, he, it was a terrible sight. John Lennon was 40 years old and his music fans everywhere mourned his death. They also mourned the fact that the dream of a Beatles reunion was also over. The 1980s was a tough decade for the Beatles. The legal disputes between the surviving members of the band and Yoko were so bitter that when the Beatles were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Paul chose not to attend. In fact, George had filed another lawsuit against Paul a few days before the ceremony, seeking a bigger cut from the Lennon-McCartney songs that he said he had helped to write. Paul was so deeply upset by it that he felt that a Beatles reunion at the ceremony would be a farce under the circumstances. Here's George from that ceremony. It's, uh, it is unfortunate Paul's not here because he was the one who had the speech in his pocket. <laughs> we all know why John can't be here and I'm sure he would be and it's hard really to stand here supposedly representing the Beatles. Uh, it's what's left, I'm afraid. But um, we all loved him so much, and we all love Paul very much. The tensions that existed between the band members in the 1980s began to ease. And by the early 1990s, Paul, George, Ringo, and Yoko began making plans for a retrospective of their career, a project that would ultimately be called The Anthology. The Beatles anthology for me is Paul, George and myself and old footage of John of course and um, audio of us telling how we felt it was like to be a Beatle. It is difficult when four people are telling the story because it's, it's actually four different stories. I mean you must realise it's got to be somewhat of a compromise when four people are involved but we're trying to just say how it felt to us. We thought it might be good from the inside out rather than from the outside in. So the Beatles anthology is their story from the inside out. As they're working on telling the story, they discuss getting together to write some incidental music for the soundtrack. But George argues that since John isn't there, it could never be the Beatles. So Paul rings up Yoko and asks her if she has any unreleased songs by John. She says she does and then she'll pull some stuff together. In January 1994, Paul comes to New York City to induct John into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a solo artist. All these people, here we are assembled to uh, thank you for everything you mean to all of us. John Lennon, you made it. Tonight you're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. God bless you. That night at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony, Yoko hands Paul cassette tapes of four demos including a crackly recording from that night in 1977 of John sitting at his piano in his apartment building in New York City playing a song called Free as a Bird.
Yoko notes the irony that after years of being accused of breaking up the Beatles, here she was giving them the opportunity to get the band back together. So they had a crackly recording of a song. Now what? I think it was George who said, no, we need a producer. You know, we, it could be dangerous just to all go in the studio. It could be get nasty. Because um, <clears throat> you got egos, you know, flying around, surprisingly. So George recommends that his friend Jeff Lynn should be the producer. Jeff Lynn had been the creative force of the Beatlesque band Electric Light Orchestra, or ELO. Jeff Lynne was also a collaborator of Tom Petty. He co-wrote and produced the song Free Fall. Jeff Lynne had also produced George's hit album, Cloud Nine, which included this song. I got my mind set on you. I got my mind set on you. He'd also been in the band The Traveling Wilburys with George Harrison, Tom Petty, Bob Dylan, and Roy Orbison. Jeff's name came up and it was like, yeah, oh, that's good, yeah. You know, we really got to know Jeff. I mean, I got to know him hanging out with him and George, uh, but then we really got to know him on Free as a Bird, and uh, he was a lifesaver on that. Because it was a kind of difficult record to make for a producer. So why not George Martin as the producer? After all, he was the legendary Beatles producer, so why not bring him back for this project? A few reasons. The first was that George Martin had already started losing his hearing. The second was that George Martin was in a lot of ways Paul's guy. And Jeff Lynne had become a trusted collaborator of George Harrison, something that Jeff Lynne was keenly aware of. It was really quite scary because I didn't know Paul very well at all. I'd only met him a couple of times before that. And um, he was a little bit worried about me because I was George's pal. And he wondered if it was going to be a little bit one-sided, you know, and not not in the spirit of things, but he needn't have worried because I was totally into the spirit of things. The third reason that George Martin wasn't a great fit for this project was that it was a very technical challenge. It's a crackly old thing, you know, it was cassette and you don't use that. You normally make your demos on cassettes and then make a proper record um, and get rid of all the crackly and the hiss and everything. But Jeff was very good in that respect too, because he took the cassette tape and he, he put it in time, because it's a demo and nobody cares about time. And if we were gonna work, and Jeff is very precise. And this is sort of Jeff Lynn's thing. He's a perfectionist. He's after sonic perfection. And the demo was free floating. So Jeff had to quantize the track, which is the technical term for putting it to a grid. So that if you put a metronome to it, it was in consistent time. But here's Jeff Lynn a few years younger than the Beatles, an accomplished rock star in his own right, 
but he's starstruck being in the room with Paul, George, and Ringo. The first afternoon really was just banter, you know. It was all the three of them. They hadn't been in the same room for, for years. And so I'm just sitting there with them, like in the, in the club with them, you know. And uh, it's just like, wow, I'm in the Beatles club. And it's like, and, that, and it's like a, a club meeting and having to reminisce. It was just superb. It was like Hamburg stories, you know, all the Liverpool stories. It was just magnificent. Jeff Lynne is living out everyone's fantasy, and he's as excited as any of us would be in that situation. So then they get to work building out what was then this very sparse demo, and they decide to pretend that John has just gone out for tea, leaving Paul, George, and Ringo to finish the track in his absence. So when we came in to do it, um, we had John in the ears, you know, and we just played along with it. Even though John was no longer on this planet, he, here he was in the studio with us. And it was very special, you know, it was all, all of us like, oh, wow, very, very, you know, big, big moment. And remember, the song was unfinished, so Paul and George have to finish the song. We just gradually built it up. Did this, did that, put a bit of bass on, guitar. George ended up putting the slide on, which was like the final icing on the cake. John's version, the bridge was unfinished. He had the first line, whatever happened to the life that we once knew, but the rest was gibberish. So Paul and George finished the bridge, and the bridge happens twice in the song. Paul sings it the first time. Whatever happened to the life that we once knew Can we really live without each other? When did we lose the touch that seemed to mean so much? It always made me feel so free And of course, Paul and George are harmonizing to John, part of what makes it sound like a Beatles record. But here's Jeff Lynne talking about when they asked his opinion for the harmony parts that they'd come up with. Neil Aspinall comes looking for me, which was great in itself, but, but he said, uh, oh, can you come in the studio a sec, Jeff? Uh, Paul and George wanted, wanted to check these harmonies, they're just uh, they're working out. And I thought, what? Me check them? Okay, I'll fucking do it. <laughs> no, it's quite astonishing, really. It's something you'd never expect to happen. And there it was, and I was checking them, and they were brilliant. The harmony sounded great. We recorded them straight away. Yeah. 
second time they sing the bridge, George sings lead vocal. Whatever happened to the love that we once knew always made me feel so free. so hard to do, I mean, because laying that voice in there, which was got a piano glued to it, was really difficult, you know? It was almost virtually impossible, but we got it done somehow. And Paul really helped on that because he sort of ghosted John's voice a little bit underneath. And uh, it was, it came out really good in the end. For what it started out as, it was amazing. So I'm, I'm pretty chuffed with it. I was, I'll never forget, Paul came and gave me a big hug and he said, well done, you've done it. So I was chuffed about that and uh, that's how it went. Free as a Bird was released as a single in December 1995. 18 years after John had recorded the demo and 15 years after he'd been killed. Free as a Bird reached number six on the Billboard Hot 100, the Beatles' 34th time in the top 10 in the US their first time in the top 10 in almost 20 years. That's the longest span for a group between top 10 hits. In 1997, it won the Grammy for the best pop performance by a duo or group with vocal. So that's the story of Free as a Bird. Let's get back to today's question. Is Free as a Bird the Beatles' most impressive hit? I think it's an incredible song. I think it's an incredible technological concept, even beyond like the actual doing it, like just being able to conceive that that's even a possibility is amazing and awesome. And getting the band back together, man. How cool is that from their perspective? We talked about Yoko Ono seeing the irony in being accused of breaking up the band all these years and being the one that gave them the opportunity to bring the band back together. It's amazing. Go Yoko. Go Yoko. All right, so I have five reasons why I'm making the case that Free as a Bird is their most impressive hit. Can I address the jury? Yes. Okay, reason number one, the risk. First of all, this could have gone spectacularly wrong, right? Totally. Embarrassingly wrong. Right. It could have been a blemish on their legacy, which unlike the Stones and the Who and Pink Floyd and even Zeppelin, who continued to work, the Beatles, they walk away with a perfect legacy. On top. Yeah. It's risky. You're right. They knew it was going to be compared to an impossibly great standard. That being said, where the other bands wrote songs later in life this song was written a long time ago right so that's true he's still closer to the original beatles mojo than for example the who's most recent album which that's was true. written years and years later so no that's true and and you know our very first episode on this podcast was can you write a masterpiece after the age of 40 he wrote that in 1977 
he's 37 when he writes that. Right. And it's one song. And it's one song. All right, reason number two. Number two. The chord sequence. Yeah. So I want to talk about the composition. The chord progression is really interesting. Yeah. What's happening in these chords? Here's what's happening in this song. I'm looking at the verse now. Yep. What the chord progression is for music nerds out there is a one, six, four, five. Now to put that in perspective, that is right that's that song heart and soul heart and soul yeah is a one six four five the difference is the four chord in free as a bird is a minor chord so the chords are a which is the one chord f sharp minor is the sixth chord the four chord in the key of a is d but john plays d minor and in that change is the basis of the entire awesomeness of this song. So it's taking a very basic chord progression. In fact, like that, all those old 50s tunes. Right? It's like Earth Angel. Like there's a million of those songs. And what he did was change one chord. From a major chord to a minor chord, and in doing so, created an entirely strange-sounding verse. So the first chord, as you said, is an A, right? Yeah. But then the second chord, he goes to the F-sharp minor with the left hand. F-sharp minor 7 chord, because the E is the 7 of the F-sharp. And then, as you say, he goes to the D minor there. But that's got an F in the bass, right? Because the bass walks down chromatically at that point. And then he goes to the E. And then he goes again to the A, F sharp minor. Seven. And then to the G. Yep. Which is the, the chord that's going to change the tonal center. And then to the C. Right. So that G chord is acting as a, a five chord. Of the new key. And then he goes to the E, but then the bridge is in F. F. Whatever happened to... And then this chord. I love this chord. Yeah. Yeah. Which is the minor A minor. Seven, flat five. Yeah, with the F sharp yeah. on the bass. Yeah. And then to the G. To the A. And then... Where did F. we lose the touch? F sharp. So much. G. Then to the E. Which is the five chord of where you're going. That's some serious deep music nerd stuff, but. You mentioned the song is in the key of A. That is a key that John loved to write and sing in. In fact, 39 Beatles songs were in the key of A, second only to the 40 that were in the key of G. Okay. Of those in A, John's songs include I'm So Tired. I'm so tired. I'm feeling so upset. Yep. I am the walrus. I am the walrus. That's like got so many changes though. That's like in the key of A with an asterisk. asterisk. Yeah. Sitting on a cornflake. Waiting for the van to come. But revolution is in the key, right? I mean that's like a bluesy thing. So And then help. Yep. Help. I need somebody. Help. 
just anybody. Dig a pony. Dig a pony fits sits so well with open strings and A on the guitar. Right, right. I love that. I love pulling yeah. the bass line on that. In my life. Yep. And ticket to ride. Man. Nice work, buddy. <laughs> good, good job out of you. Deep dive on the the key of A. We should check in on our audience. Did we lose you? <laughs> oh, we definitely <laughs> lost you. This Sorry. Nerd fest. But yeah. it is a fascinatingly curious chordal structure to discuss at length. A complicatedly awesome, beautifully written hit song. And this is what the Beatles did, and we've talked about this before, that you know John and Paul in particular writing the rules for a genre in a lot of ways without the music theory knowledge. They just right. are intuitively falling into these really complex and perfect progressions. It just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, it's interesting, and it's, it's interesting. very it's very Beatlesque. And so yep. you know when we talk about why did this song work and why does this song work for me personally, it just feels like a Beatles song. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Reason number three. Okay. We talked about the bridge and that awesome change where it goes from the E yep. into the F of the bridge. This gets to the part of the song that was a true collaboration between Paul, John, and George. Right. As we discussed, the bridge was unfinished, and just like countless Beatles songs. It was John who came in with a song and said, sort of metaphorically speaking, like, I need help with this bridge, guys. And the chords were there, basically, along with the idea of the melody. But Paul and George bring it across the finish line with words that feel very profound. Where did we lose the touch that seemed to mean so much? This is coming on the heels, a long spell of discord between these guys. Right. So that's the other thing. It's a gift of saying, you know, where did we lose the touch that seemed to mean so much? It always made me feel so free. It's like very cathartic. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well said. Where did we lose the touch that seemed to mean so much? It always made me feel so free. Reason number four. The technical achievement. Oh, God. Remarkable. Did Jeff Lynne win some sort of award? Right. <laughs> because it's a feat. It's, it, it, it's reminiscent of Michael Jackson hologram right. kind of stuff, right? And that's a point that's worth making because if you're a casual listener to this, you may be judging this song differently than you and I are judging the song. Like We know how complicated this was to pull off. And so that's providing added value to us as listeners studio tricks it's fascinating in fact that would be an amazing little documentary totally like seeing footage of how they handled each part of this i would love to see that unbelievable i would love to come on peter jackson (laughs) what's next reason number five it gave us more beatles yep and the fact that they were able to come together get past their acrimony and their lawsuits it changed their legacy. It allowed them to focus on the anthology. It just got the conversation going again. So a new generation of people found the Beatles, I'm sure, right? Like, because they were in the mainstream again, you've got all these people that are like, oh, the Beatles. 
Like young people. I mean, I don't think Cirque du Soleil love show happens without anthology. Definitely. I agree. I don't think Peter Jackson's Get Back happens. No. Like it brought them to the table again in yep. a collaborative, creative way. There that, was a, a that lot of bitterness. Yeah. A lot of bitterness. Is it their best song? No. No, but f- for all the reasons we've just discussed, I think you really can make a case that it is their most impressive song. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Yeah. Did we <laughs> did we do it? I I think we did. I think we did it. If you have not already done so, we ask that you hit subscribe, hit follow, and share this podcast with a friend. Smash that like button. We hope you had fun, as much fun as we did, and we hope you'll join us next time when we answer another age-old question. Follow us on Instagram at The Age Old Question. Facebook, The Age Old Question. We hope this conversation has sparked some ideas and thoughts of your own. Let us know in the comments. But let's be kind, people. Yeah. No hating. No hating. Love Target? Well, you're about to love it even more. Target's new Red Card Reloadable saves you 5% every Target trip, in-store and online and doesn't require a bank account or credit check to get approved. Target.com slash red card to get all the details. Restrictions apply.